Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show live on this Wednesday, February 7th, just after 1 o'clock Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, 2.30 in lovely Newfoundland. Hope you are having a, a wonderful day and wonderful week. I wanted to, I, today's going to be, I, I think, a, a very interesting show. I've been telling you for the last couple of days, we're going to have Premier Danielle Smith on the program. That is going to be today. I The, the collection I feared might happen by jinxing it did not occur and we were able to proceed that interview was recorded yesterday evening so we'll share that with you in just a few moments time we sat down at the Albany Club which is a very lovely place it's a I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a, it's a, a private club by definition, but it, it's not, they, they've allowed me, I'm not a member, but like I've been told I could apply for membership and would probably get it. So I don't think it's all that exclusive to use the old, I think, was it Groucho Marx or Chico Marx or... Harpo Marx or Karl Marx, I don't know. Uh, whoever said, you know, I'd never be a member of a club that would have me as a member. That's kind of how I feel about it. But I, I joke, it's a, a lovely place. I, I actually spoke there when my book, The Freedom Convoy, came out. And it was good to be back for this interview with Danielle Smith. She was the keynote speaker of the Albany Club's big annual black tie dinner, the Sir John A. McDonald dinner. And uh, because it is Danielle Smith and this is Canada, she was met with protesters who have been following her as she's gone through Ontario. She had an event in Ottawa on Monday that was protested. They've uh, protested her in Toronto yesterday. I'm assuming whenever she appears next, she'll be protested all in response to the announcement that she made last week that we spoke about on the show about parental rights, about caution and uh, consideration and compassion for younger people who are transgender, who are battling or grappling with gender dysphoria. The announcement, I mean, there were a number of policies. She said they're going to ban any sex reassignment surgeries for minors, uh, any uh, hormone therapy for uh, minors under the age of 16, uh, protecting women's only sports, and also insisting on parental rights if a, a youth under 16 wants to change their name, gender, pronouns, etc. in school. These are policies that are incredibly popular with the majority of Canadian parents across religious lines, political lines, geographic lines, cultural lines, all of it. These are policies that are not just conservative, let alone social conservative. So really, these protesters are in the minority. You know that old line from Justin Trudeau, the fringe minority? This is a literal fringe minority. This is a, a literal fringe minority that was coming out to protest Danielle Smith. Now, the Albany Club is a very old building. It goes back to the 1800s. I don't know when the current building was constructed, but old buildings do not insulate from sound very well. So I was getting a little nervous when we were setting up and starting to hear the chants from protesters who were like right outside. We were on the third floor. They were right outside and below where we were. And I, I was not I noticed, and I, I remarked to Sean, my uh, producer, uh, and, and Jeff was there as well, uh, who's a videographer with True North. I remarked that it was odd that they ran out of the trans chants after like 15 minutes, and they had already reverted to uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which uh, perhaps you believe, perhaps you don't. I'm not sure what that has to do with Danielle Smith or the Albany Club, but uh, that Sean then sent me this video later on because he was outside and they had again exhausted uh, the trans stuff and the from the river to the sea stuff and they were just shouting about intifada 
Long live the Intifada. All right, well, there you go. The Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith. She's been told, long live the Intifada. That is, uh, all of these protests, if you've ever been to like a left-wing protest, first off, I hope you took a shower and got deloused. But if you've ever been to a left-wing protest, you'll notice that they all kind of converge by the end of it into the same thing. They're indistinguishable. It's all about trans lives, black lives, Palestinian lives, and indigenous land. And it's all this sort of amorphous mass that is indistinct. So again, when these people were carrying their trans flags and uh, talking about liberation for Palestinians, I was really encouraging. I was like, yes, why don't you go and take your message? To I didn't say this. I, you know, I just, I had to get home. I'd been away from home for a long time, but had I said it, which is the most cowardly thing is like, if I were to say it, I would have said, I would love for you to take your trans flag to Gaza and really spread the message of trans liberation and Palestinian liberation all at once. But Nevertheless, the protesters were a uh, pretty meager group there. There, there was this one uh, clip I'll play for you. I, I want you to help me because I'm actually having trouble figuring out what they're even saying in this one. I, I no idea. It's like rabble, 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 rabble. So they're saying something. They're chanting something. What was it you thought they were saying, Sean? Sean, uh, I, I had him try to demystify it earlier. I got to find his. Uh, he, oh, stand up, fight. I didn't hear stand up, fight back. I, maybe you did. That's fine. Um, he, Sean was out there in the midst uh, filming that. So uh, stand up, fight back might have been this, the syllables match up. Yeah, but the syllables match up of like chicken cornbread. Uh, that also matches up. Like it's just your four syllables is all. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't start counting the syllables and saying that, you know, the the words from that. But uh, I don't I don't know why chicken cornbread was the first four syllable thing that came to my mind. It might have been that like Southern restaurant I went to in uh, in Washington, D.C. Nevertheless, this was what Danielle Smith was grappling with. Now, I can say that she was unfazed by it. We uh, did the interview and she was quite unflinching and unrepentant about the gender policies that she announced a couple of weeks ago. So I want to share that interview with you. We'll also talk on the other side of it about the political repercussions of this beyond uh, Danielle Smith, because this has now entered the federal realm. And we finally got some clarity from a conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, today about his position. But here was my interview with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith yesterday at the Albany Club in Toronto. Sitting at the Albany Club, the mainstay of the Canadian conservative movement with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Premier, always good to talk to you. Thank Hi, you so Andrew. much for joining me today. My pleasure. So how do you feel being in Ontario, first and foremost? I know you haven't gotten the warmest welcome, as we'll talk about from some folks. You know, I've had a really warm welcome. It's been uh, amazing. I had uh, some great meetings with the minister as well as the opposition members. I also had a, a chance to sp speak to the Economic Club of, of Canada. And I'll be uh, I'll be doing another speech this evening. And, you know, my message is is the reason I'm on the road is to tell people that Alberta is open for business. Alberta wants to be part of a strong and united Canada. When Alberta does well, Canada does well. And we just need to get the federal government out of our way so that we can continue to invest in our economy. So I people are, are liking that message. And I'm hoping to see more investment in Alberta as a result. Well, we'll certainly get to that in, in a few moments, but I, I want to begin starting starting off really about the announcement that you made a little over a week ago on a suite of policies related to gender and healthcare for transgender individuals, the way they're treated in the education system and in sports. You packed a lot into that, and I, I wonder if I can kind of offer a, a, a question here about why it took so long when we saw similar moves in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. What 
was it that made now the moment and not months ago when people were pushing your government to have an answer to these questions? Well, I've been, I've been watching this unfold over the, the last number of years, and I've, uh, I've also um, paid attention as uh, we've seen lawsuits that have, have generated, not just here, but ar around the world. Uh, we've watched as the, the policy that was really began in the approach that was uh, started in the Netherlands, started getting rolled back in some of the Nordic um, and progressive nations in Europe, and, and then of course the UK in particular, which made a pretty dramatic move to phase to schedule the shutdown of their gender identity clinic Tavistock as a result of a, of a lawsuit. So I was watching this and, and seeing as well locally, uh, there was a, a young transgender woman who felt pushed into, rushed into making a decision prematurely and has had ongoing health issues as a result of that. So as I looked at this, uh, at this uh, window of, of the, the, the range of debate on it, I wanted to see if we could find a balance. We, we know that transgender adults need better support in their medical decisions. There's a lot of aftercare that has to happen because of surgery. There's a lot of, there's lifetime uh, hormonal treatment and managing some of the side effects that has to occur. So we wanna make sure that they have access to the care that they need. But then we have to talk about when is it that a child should be making these decisions that in some cases are irreversible. So we, uh, we believe that these are adult decisions to be made as adults. So no surgery uh, until 18 and over. And, and no cross-sex uh, hormones as well until 16 and older. We think 16 is kind of the age where kids now begin to understand the consequences of, of what it is that they're choosing. And we want to make sure that there's a pathway to keep families informed along the way and involved along the way. So that was the approach we wanted to take. You, you put forward in, in your announcement video what I and a lot of people have lauded a, as being a very compassionate message, a very balanced and nuanced message. But... You fast forward to today, and I, I don't know how much of it people watching this interview can hear, but you've got protesters outside that uh, have been chanting some pretty vile things inexplicably about Palestine, too, which uh, I don't know if Alberta has a skin in the game on, on, on that foreign policy debate. But uh, you had the same thing in, in Ottawa, a lot of uh, protesters here. And, and you also, from the federal liberal government, had uh, some, I, I think, very torqued rhetoric in response to this. Uh, Randy Boissonneau, an Alberta member of parliament, for the Liberals said this was the, the NATO moment. So do you think there's truth to the criticism you've had from some of your supporters that you, you're trying to find a compromise with people that aren't willing to compromise? I, I Look, I, I know that there is not uniformity of opinion in the medical profession. There's not uniformity of opinion in the LGBT plus community either. And as a result, I, I consulted broadly to, to, to try to get a suite of, of proposals that I thought were, were, were going to be very reasonable. I, I think the, the rhetoric and the, the way in which the protesters are reacting is it's not helpful. They're not being truthful about what it is that I'm proposing because I'm very supportive of uh, allowing and, uh, and helping a person become who they want to be, whatever that pathway is. I, I, what, I, what I think we have to be mindful of as, a, as adults is that uh, kids don't necessarily have the full context of what it means if they're making decisions for sterilization, what it means if they're making decisions for cross-sex hormones that create permanent changes. And until they are old enough to understand the ramifications of those, we think we have to be very cautious. Give them support, give them um, me mental health treatment, uh, give them counseling to, um, to make sure that, that uh, they can develop the, the comfort level so that they can make that decision. But don't, don't make that decision prematurely. That's what we're concerned about because I've read many stories of regret of people feeling like they got rushed, people feeling they made the decision prematurely. 
people detransitioning. And we shouldn't be in that situation. I don't want any person going through this feeling like they made a mistake. We want to make sure that every person who makes this decision is confident and happy with their choice and that we're supporting them. So that's part of the reason for the caution. On, on polling we've seen on this, uh, parents' rights specifically, not some of the, the other aspects of this, there is massive support. It cuts across religious groups. It cuts across political groups. This is not purely a, a social conservative issue. I, I know you've never really identified as, as a social conservative specifically, but it, it does touch on some of these issues that are claimed by these groups. And, and one issue that's come up in the last few days is people saying, well, if you're requiring parental consent for uh, gender transition, why not parental consent for abortion as well? I would say people want to know what's going on with their kids. That's the reason why. And this is a long transition process. It begins with the renaming and the adoption of pronouns, moves on to puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, and then ultimately ends up in surgery and a, a complete transition. And families need to be involved in every step of that process. These are lifelong changes that a child is making, and so we want to make sure that the changes that they're making are ones that they can live with. On the other issue, as you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm for choice, and I, I do believe as well, similarly, having a child is a lifelong decision, and it's a, one that the, the parent is the one, principally, who should be making that decision, and the parent is the one who is having the child. So I, um, I think we have to make sure that young people are not abused, um, and, they, they're not, and that's not the reason, sexual abuse is not the reason for why it is that they, um, they, they find themselves pregnant. But I, I, I would leave that to, to the child to, to uh, make sure that they're making a decision that they can live with. Are you concerned about the federal government trying to involve itself in, in some way? Are there mechanisms the federal government even has available? Because they've clearly decided this is a policy they, they take great issue with that you're advancing in Alberta. Well, I, th I think, again, I had, I had part of the reason for my caution and delay is I'd really hoped that we could depoliticize this. There, there are serious concerns. Hasn't really worked out, has it? <laughs> you know, there are serious, it hasn't. And that's, I think that's a, a shame because I'm trying to be quite measured in the approach that I'm taking. I, I have transgender uh, friends. I have a transgender staff. I have a transgender family member. I, I, have, I have spent a lot of time trying to understand how this community feels and what their needs are. But I also know that there are a handful of people who, who have regret. And, and that has me very concerned. I, I've mentioned before Lois Cardinal. I mean, her story stays with me. And uh, because she ultimately went to a point where she wanted to seek medical assistance in dying because of the complications that happened after her surgery 14 years later. We've got to address those health needs. We've got to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that people like Lois feel supported. So. I, I, I think it's being mischaracterized. I, I think that um, people will see that the measures that we put in place that allow for uh, us to attract more doctors who can do the surgical aftercare, who can give that long-term uh, life care, I think people will see that we're actually going to be very supportive of the trans community. I wanted to turn to what you started off talking about, which is the you know relationship between Al Alberta and Ottawa. This week you uh, opened up or reopened, I should say, it's been closed for quite some time, at Alberta's representative office in, in Ottawa. And I, I'm curious where you think this relationship can go, because I know you and, and your minister, Rebecca Schultz, have had very harsh words for Stephen Gilbo in particular, and I, 
uh, won't pretend for a moment they haven't been undeserved. But but is it a relationship that can be fixed? And and what would that look like? Because not, not with Stephen Guibault. I mean, he's not. But ideologue. with Justin Trudeau, I mean, is he the problem or is the the government itself the problem? It's tough for me to tell because there are some ministers that he's put in place who have a very constructive relationship with. Um, ones who are just as excited about some of the investments we're making in our provinces, I am. Whether it's the Dow uh, Chemical Petrochemical Project that's net zero, or Air Products net zero hydrogen, or Heidelberg and their plan for net zero cement, um, or um, even um, De Havilland and their aviation project. The federal government has partnered with us on making sure those got to the finish line. So I know that there are ministers in that government who want to see Alberta do well. It's just so baffling then why Stephen Guibault is allowed to act like a renegade and just freelance on policy after policy after policy that works against that uh, that that end that would essentially shut down our industry not only damaging us but damaging themselves that's the thing that's baffling to me is when alberta does well because the federal government has a higher corporate income tax higher personal income taxes higher taxes generally across the board they do very well off the revenues generated in alberta that then go to fund they're the programs that, that they support across the country. So th this has been one of the, the uh, frustrations of our province is that we, we are contributors to Confederation and we're happy to be wealth creators. But the, the ingratitude that we often see from the federal government is almost like, well, we wanna crush your economy, but keep the money coming. It doesn't work that way. If they want us to be contributing members to Confederation and to help out, then they've gotta allow us to be able to develop our own wealth. Yeah, and I think that's the the one area that's always been tremendously inconsistent. I mean, Quebec is a notable example of this. They spare no uh, effort in cashing checks from Alberta, but when it comes to developing the resource sector in, in Canada, they've been blocking it. And I, I know you've had positive things to say about your discussions with uh, Premier Legault in the past, but, but is there a way to break through when you have premiers that are being very resistant to development? I mean, British Columbia has always been a, a sticking point for uh, getting Alberta oil to market, but Quebec as well. Look, natural gas is a transition fuel. Canada signed on to COP and the final communique, and it says right in there that natural gas is a transition. Yeah, the war was supposed to be on coal, not on Completely. you know oil and, and gas. So let's act as if we're going to live up to the commitment that we made and provide natural gas, not only to the rest of the country, but also to the world. I mean, Quebec has enormous natural gas resources. They would be able to develop carbon capture utilization and storage technology, develop hydrogen, develop ammonia, and, and be able to support our international trading partners. They can do that too. They're, they're suffering from uh, constriction in their uh, electricity grid as well. I mean, they're at the, the peak of their, of their energy with, uh, with the hydro development that they have. It's not gonna be any easier to get hydroelectric development done today. There's, impact on the land, on biodiversity, on First Nations rights. And so I, I think there has to be a bit of a reality check in Quebec, and there has to be a reality check at the federal level. In Europe, they've embraced the idea that natural gas is a transition fuel so that we're able to bring everybody up to a level of, of, uh, of wealth and prosperity so that we can address the issue of energy poverty, which is a very serious global issue. And I, I just feel like if you're gonna sign an agreement agreeing to those principles, then agreed all the all the principles, and I, I would like to see uh, Quebec and, and uh, Canada do that. I know your government sent quite a large delegation to the most recent COP conference, and I, I presume, without uh, getting you to commit to anything, that that will happen in, in the future. I'll commit to it. I'm going to Azerbaijan, and I am okay. going to Brazil as well. I, all right. There's no way I can have Stephen Guibault, as long as he is environment minister, and I've called for him to be fired, and I stand by that. 
as long as he is environment minister, I will have to go to those conferences well, I, because he can he cannot represent Alberta's inter interests on the international stage. I, so I, you, you kind of answered the question I was going to ask, which was whether you are able to or trying to do an end run around the federal government. But is that what it's had to come to now that that provinces have to basically have their own, you know, their, their own diplomatic corps, basically, to start representing Canada's interests at these fora? There's no question we have to. I mean, it's part and parcel of why we're represented now in Ottawa. Quebec is, in, is represented in Ottawa. They have an office there. And I find that very interesting, being that most of the civil service is from Quebec mm. and that they're right across the river in Hull. And yet they felt a need to be able to have a diplomatic office in Ottawa. Well, if they're there, then we should be there, too. They're internationally at more international offices as well. Internationally, they also go to all of these conferences. And internationally, they also sign on to subnational agreements that are hostile to our interests. So um, my view is that there are a lot of energy producing nations in the world um, and subnational governments that, that want to do the right thing, that want to find ways to share technology, use carbon capture utilization and storage, develop hydrogen, develop ammonia. And, and uh, in, increasingly in Alberta, look at things like geothermal and uh, brine lithium as a, a way of taking our current resource and using and developing it in a different way. And we want to share that technology. So I want to assist in bringing the subnational and national governments together who are energy producers so that we can share that technology. And I think that, that the COP meetings are the perfect place to do that. So I think that uh, you'll, you'll see a much stronger presence of, of Alberta in, in the future. I know it's very easy for Albertans who voted against the, the Liberals in the vast majority of the province in the last federal election to find a foe in, in the Liberal government right now. And I think that probably makes your job easier in a way because you can kind of point to Ottawa and this government. But Alberta has not always had great success historically with Conservative governments federally. I, I think of the Brian Mulroney years, which were perhaps preferable to Pierre Trudeau, but not by much to a lot of people. And, and I'm curious not to you know, force you back into your previous role as, as a political commentator, but I, I'm curious what your sense is from what Pierre Polyev has said to you either privately or what he said publicly about what a change in that direction would mean for Alberta. Would it make a lot of the issues that you have with Ottawa go away or are there still some grave concerns you'd have that are general regardless of who's in power federally? One of the things I find that, uh, that Pierre Polyev says a lot is let the province run provincial jurisdiction. Let the province run the hospital. Let the province run the school system. Uh, focus on the things that the federal government should be focused on. They've got a big job to do. They have to, um, to, to express who we are on the international stage in international trade and foreign aid in national defense. Um, they, they have to develop uh, immigration policy. They, they, they have to manage our money supply and, can, and, and our, uh, the value of our dollar. These are all the justice system. Like there's a lot that the federal government has to do that they're not doing particularly well. So rather than trying to tell me how to run my business, I think they should focus on running their own business. And I get the very strong sense that, that Pierre understands just how much there is to fix at the federal level. He has no interest in micromanaging the provinces. I think we'll find lots of areas of collaboration. So if there's a change of government, and I think we're going to, I think it'll be very good for Alberta. Premier, thank you. My pleasure. That was my chat yesterday with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. I, I've often joked I used to be her uh, go-to guest host or fill-in at uh, 770 CHQR in Calgary. So my uh, my joke, which is now overused, but you, uh, well, it's my show, so you have to listen to it again, is that uh, I think the Constitution says I'm the acting Premier now because I've never technically been told I wasn't her fill-in. So uh, it was good to be radio colleagues. Good now to sit down in a uh, different capacity as she is the Premier and I am, well, still a, a broadcaster, but having more fun than 
then I worked for a, a legacy media outlet, I, I must admit. But she's uh, done something there that I think is very important. Now, I, I was getting a little bit, I don't want to say antsy, because I, I knew from sources I had spoken to in the Alberta government that something was coming. But I had wondered why it was taking so long. You may recall it was back in, I think, November that the UCP had its AGM. Members overwhelmingly voted for parental rights policies. We had the federal conservatives vote for this in September. We had New Brunswick push this in the summer. Saskatchewan not long after. And a lot of people were saying, why is Alberta? the conservative heartland of Canada, not doing the same. And when the announcement ultimately came out, it became far more apparent why. The reason was because we had a, a government that was doing a lot more. There, there, it's, it's not even possible to summarize in one sentence what this legislation is about because it touches on healthcare, it touches on sports, it touches on education, it touches on all of these things. And, and that was why, to bring it to the federal realm for a moment, uh, Pierre Polyev has had a bit of an out when people have asked him about it because people have asked in general terms. There was a, a, an exchange he had with a reporter for Omni a couple of days ago in which the reporter, and I felt bad for the guy because it was just, a, it wasn't even a reporter. It was a camera guy that had been given a question to ask. And then he asks the question and it was a terrible question, terribly worded, but he, he didn't know anything about it. He was just like reading it to get Polyev's response. So Polyev then, you know, does the Polyev thing with the media before he is sort, sort of pulled back on it. But uh, what ended up happening there was uh, he had the premise of the question was that Polyev is restricting access to transgender youth. It was some some variation of that. There was a, a better version of the question asked yesterday in Montreal by by Justin Ling, who's a a left leaning reporter, but he's been on the show. I, I've always had a, a very cordial relationship with him. But uh, Justin Ling asked a question which I, I think was entirely fair, which was you know first off, where do you stand personally on this? And uh, then more importantly, is it true, this Globe and Mail story that said your caucus members are forbidden from speaking out about it? This came out uh, a couple of days ago. Now, again, I didn't like Justin Ling's framing of the policy itself, which was nonspecific, uh, as you'll see. And, and Polyev seized on that. But this was the exchange in question. Uh, you often said you support uh, medical freedom, that you oppose the state imposing medical choices on the Canadians. Uh, yesterday, you were asked about a new policy in Alberta, uh, which restricts health care for transgender uh, youth in particular. Uh, you refused to say where you actually stand on those regulations. Uh, you attacked journalists who asked you that question as peddling disinformation for the Prime Minister. So can you say now where you stand on the state restricting health care access for transgender youth? And can you confirm whether or not your caucus is allowed to speak freely on this issue? Uh, first and foremost, uh, you are spreading disinformation and you refuse to even describe the policy proposals that are being debated. Uh, you refuse to even list any of them. And, and the, the, reason that you, the reason you do, let's be clear why you don't do it, because you don't want to lose the debate. And so if you, think, if you keep it vague and you actually refrain from actually describing the policies that Premier Smith is putting in place, then you think that you can misrepresent them and misrepresent rep, rep, represent conservatives. Uh, this is exactly what Justin Trudeau has done. You notice that Trudeau has not given a single example of any of the policies that Premier Smith has brought forward that he individually disagrees with because he doesn't want to be specific about it. And that's because he and you want to peddle in disinformation in order to demonize uh, Premier Smith 
and parents. And Justin Trudeau has spread hatred against parents. He's accused Muslim parents of being hateful because they were standing up for their kids. He's attacked Christian parents. He has suggested that parents cannot be trusted with their kids. And I disagree with him. I think we have to trust parents. No one cares for their kids more than parents. And that's why Justin Trudeau should butt out. He should let parents raise kids and let provinces run schools and hospitals. So again, he gives a general support for what provinces are, are doing. And, and in general, I think he's saying the federal government shouldn't engage, but he still didn't deal with the core of the question. And the core of the question is, what do you think about this policy? And are members of your caucus allowed to do it? And this is, by the way, now almost uh, a full week after it was announced, I think six days after it was announced. He knows the questions are coming. Parties prep the leader and their members of parliament up the yin-yang with talking points and messages for how to respond to these things. And still, there was not a, a cogent or cohesive answer to the question at stake. Well, we finally got one this morning on a key part of it. But uh, as you'll see in this clip, I'm about, I, I, I won't even comment on it. I'll just share the clip with you right now. It's about two and a half minutes long because I want you to get the full back and forth of this. And then I'll, I'll have some thoughts on the other end of it. But this this morning at a uh, press conference that uh, Pierre Polyev held in Ottawa. Do you support age restrictions for puberty blockers and hormone therapies for trans kids? Um, I think that uh, Justin Trudeau is trying to divide and distract Canadians by spreading disinformation about uh, the decisions that premiers and parents are making. What do you think? What do you think? I want to know your position. What is your own party policy? It's your own party policy. At party convention. I think we should protect the rights of parents to make their own decisions. What does it mean? With regards to their children. And I believe that adults should have the freedom to make any decision they want about their bodies. But minors so so surgeries and medical interventions for minors as your own party members suggested. Medical sir. interventions like what? That, that, it, that is the language that your party What medical used. interventions? Well, you have to ask your party members. What medical such interventions? As medical, such as puberty blockers and hormone For minors? Yeah. Yes. Irreversible? You're talking but about irreversible? I, 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 I want to like to understand you your position. No, I want to be clear. I just want to be clear. Puberty blockers for minors? Yes. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that? I think that we should protect children what and their ability mean? to make adult decisions when they're adults. So you think only, only adults only adults should make oh you said yes? Just just to be clear, you said yes, only adults should take puberty blockers. I think we should protect children. Let them make adult decisions when they become adults. So that's so you, you, you are against puberty blockers for kids under the age of eighteen. Is that is that yes. clear? Okay. okay. What about can I ask you about um, uh, in Alberta, By the way, I just want to make another comment on this. Justin Trudeau is again puffing out his chest, trying to divide Canadians and attack parents who are trying to protect their kids. He will, in the end, back down on this, just like he had to back down on his firearms policy, just like he had to back down on bringing in medical assistance and dying for people suffering from mental illness, just like he's backing down again and again and again. He will back down on this because he is not interested in protecting kids. He's interested in using this as a divisive wedge to distract from doubling housing costs and quadrupling carbon taxes. 
on our people. But it's for Mr. you. For you. You're, 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 so you're against puberty blockers for kids under yes. the age of 18. Mr. Hey, what about opting yes, in? I am. What about parents in Alberta having to opt in for sex ed? Where do you every stand on that? No, that's, that's, that's a decision for the province. No, but what do you think? So he gave a very clear answer there. He's against puberty blockers for kids under 18. Okay, that's one of several policies that Daniel Smith was putting forward. Now, I think if you're trying to block puberty after 18, something has gone wrong. So generally speaking, if you're against puberty blockers under 18, you're, you're just against puberty blockers in general. But look at how difficult it was to get a straight yes or no answer on that. Now, journalists share some of the blame for that because they're not giving clear, unequivocal questions. I mean, if I were doing an interview with him on this subject, I would go and I'd list point by point every single aspect of the policy, agree, disagree, agree, disagree, agree, disagree. But, but he's also, I think, playing deliberately coy here by not just answering the question head on. And, and I, to be honest, I don't know what it is. Because Pierre Polyev is very unlike previous conservative leaders who are just incapable of giving a clear answer on anything. I mean, Aaron O'Toole, Andrew Scheer largely, post-leader Andrew Scheer is great. Leader Andrew Scheer was a little bit more challenging in this regard. But uh, Pierre Polyev has always been clear and un unequivocal on, on what he says. So why this issue is the one that gets him. Always. I mean, going back months when New Brunswick was doing what it was doing, it would take days and days and days before he would come out and say, yes, I support parental rights, by which point people have already had to kind of let sit this, well, why is he not being clear? It's like, remember when Aaron O'Toole couldn't say whether he would meet with truckers that were coming to Ottawa as part of the convoy? So this, the cynic in me, the political cynic is like, well, are they waiting for polling to come back? But we know they're not because the polling is back and everyone knows how popular these policies are. So it's a weird, I don't have an answer to it, but there is a, an inherent aversion right now among the conservatives, I think, to want to deal with this issue head on. They need to realize that this is the position that is the popular position. It's the morally right position. We're talking about children and it shouldn't take so many attempts and so many days to get that question answered, which is what ended up happening today. So uh, we'll have more on this, I'm sure, as the story unfolds. But uh, I will say, just on that Danielle Smith interview I shared, it was a bit interesting how, as she and I were speaking, the protesters outside were, were chanting away. And thank goodness we had really good uh, lavalier mics that uh, did not pick up the background noise. But we could still hear it. And I, I, I kind of felt bad for Danielle Smith uh, having not like as a you know message of political support, but in general, like it must be weird to do an interview while you are being heckled and you can hear yourself being heckled. Like I remember having uh, Jason Kenny on the show at one point during COVID when he was you know very unpopular, and uh, Jason Kenny was we were, with the program we used at the time, which we don't use anymore for live interviews would show while you were being interviewed, while you were a guest, a live feed of all the comments that people were posting on any platform we were streaming to. So YouTube comments, Facebook comments, Rumble comments, they were all there. And, and Jason Kenny, I, he's doing the interview and I keep seeing his eyes darting over on the screen to where the comments are coming in. And he mentioned it after, he's like, these people were saying I'm a you know Satan worshiper. They're calling me Klaus Schwab. Like, it was, so you're, you're, you're seeing it. It's like, I mean, so mission accomplished for the commenters, but. Yeah, I imagine that uh, doing an interview while you're being heckled is is not uh, the most fun, but we were able to, to tune it out, and, and thankfully, it didn't overwhelm the audio. So take that, radical activists on uh, King Street in Toronto. 
Uh, we have been uh, profiling and highlighting on this show the positives of the oil and gas sector. It's a series we call Unjust Transition, our inversion of the federal government's so-called just transition. And we have just two interviews left in this series to bring us to the end of the week. So without further ado, here is my sit down in Calgary a couple of months back with Renee Amaro, who is the CEO of Secure Energy. Joined by Renee Amiro of Secure. Uh, just start with a basic question for people that aren't as familiar with the ins and outs of the industry. What are energy services and how do you fit into this landscape? Yeah, great, great question in, in terms of we, we've been around for all of 17 years, you know, started in 2000, uh, it'll be 17 years next year, started in 2007 and March 2007 and, and really try to develop a company that, um, was there to help the oil and gas industry and which is now involved into many industries, mining and industrial. But um, the premise was that um, we wanted to be an environmental company. We wanted to be involved with waste management, the byproducts of the oil and gas, but we also wanted to be involved in some of the proactive practices of how do you actually reduce your environmental footprint. And this was back before ESG was sexy Long and before the Paris Agreement, all all, this, all, uh, all yes. the above, but to give uh, testament to our customers, they were also willing participants in that they could see the old practices of 30, 40, 50 years ago were causing, you know, liabilities that they didn't want to, you know, have in the future. So there was all, I think, a mutual interest there. How could we work together? We also wanted to help them in just the day-to-day -day production. So you know, the simple things that, that, that look simple, but are complicated is, you know, as you produce the oil and, and natural gas, there's also water byproducts, mm -hmm. there's waste that gets built up. And, and so handling that day-to-day -day production waste as well. And then finally, finally, we're helping with some of the remediation and the reclamation of, of their uh, wells as they became suspended to abandonment and finally putting it back to what nature was there before. The narrative we hear today, certainly from a, a lot of people in government and even more so in environmental NGOs, is, is that the industry is the problem to the environment and the government is the solution. So that doesn't square with the story you've just told of the industry taking a leading role on this. So what are people missing in this discussion? Yeah, for, first of all, you know, reading headlines or reading biased statements versus getting out there and actually seeing what's going on is, you know, is perception versus reality. And, and so I've had the luxury of, because Secure has been very successful, wanting to expand all around the world. And whether you go to Texas or you could go to Kazakhstan or you go to the Middle East, it, it doesn't matter. Colombia, mm -hmm. um, Canada has not only the best regulations, but the best regulations that are followed. There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of countries that have good regulations, but they're not enforced. Mm. So it's all about not only not only having good regulations, but also following. But the great thing about our industry was that right from day one, industry had an in input and bought into the new regulations, so they didn't fight them. Mm. And so as time developed, they could see the benefits of you know stricter environmental regulations was actually better for the business long term. So before the whole ESG theme started to come about, our customers were thinking, asking us to help them be more proactive mm. with any type of environmental uh, aspects of the business. And you look at the environmental footprint that 
that was around 50, even 15 years ago versus today, the, you know, drilling eight to 12 wells on one pad versus, you know, having eight or 12 leases, all that is now on one lease, you know, so, and then the pipeline coming from there to get the oil or gas to, to the processing plant to get it to the market, huge smaller footprint. Everybody's worked together in terms of reducing emissions. We, we've been doing a lot of things. A lot of product was moved by truck. Now that's pipeline connected. So you're taking trucks off the road that burn diesel, but you're also from a safety aspect, you're not worried about all these trucks on different roads and highways. So all these little things are adding up to reducing the overall emissions intensity. It's also reducing their long-term liability. So it's a win-win. There's, there's not, this is costing us more business. It's actually the right thing for not only the planet earth, but for their business. And we've been able to create a business where we're adding value to the customers. And so that that's where it becomes a win-win. Hey, I know the words themselves are fraught, but we have the government articulating this so-called just transition that uh, basically imagines a, a future without the oil and gas sector. And there are very real world consequences to that. And really the stated objectives, uh, I go back to what we were talking about a few moments ago, or things that you're saying the industry has already been committed to. So where is the breakdown here and, and why has that work not really been rewarded by governments, not just in Canada, but, but around the world, we're seeing a lot of the same. Yeah, I, I, I think when, you know, I, 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 I look at it no differently than someone picks up a new religion, I, I'm not going to be able to convince them to change religion. So if you have open-minded people that want to get away from the big cities and, and come and walk, you know, in, in footsteps, you know, and 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 actually see what's going on and and most most of uh, uh, our visitors that have come from other countries are astonished to see the the cleanliness the the uh, how we how we have all this environmental protection we we do sometimes two three different liners to protect the earth you know we have all these gas blanket system to reduce emissions mm -hmm. and so and make sure that they don't uh, go in the atmosphere so when people actually get out there and touch it and feel it, they come away with a whole different story. And this even goes to the investment world, which, you know, you hear about, you know, not wanting to invest in oil and gas. A lot of our investors, we encourage them to go to the field and see what's going on and come away with a totally different perspective as opposed to reading headlines in a newspaper or, or a TV show. Well, and I think that's why this series has been so valuable in these conversations, because there, there are a lot of Canadians that I don't think no one way or another. So they're, they're probably open-minded and the first person or the loudest person to give them their position is probably the one that they'll take. So I'll ask, I guess, more of a general question here. I mean, what is it you think Canadians who are not connected to this industry need to know about it? Well, I think, first of all, they can, they can uh, sleep at night knowing that they're, the Canadian oil and gas industry has the best environmental regulations and the best standards in the world. So bar none, bar none, I've seen them, I've been there, bar none. Second of all, you know, this, this industry is not resting on its laurels. It's saying, okay, we're going to stay number one for a long, long time. So how do we capture CO2? Mm -hmm. How do we reduce further emissions? How do we make things more efficient? And, and that's been a market-led process. Yeah, and, and, and that has nothing to do with government. That has to do with the DNA of, mm -hmm. of our oil and gas industry. And then secondly... As we've seen, and and you know, we we have the 
coastal LNG pipeline going to Kitimat. Mm -hmm. We have the TMX coming up. We're going to be able to not only do that for North America, but if you can start exporting that around the world, it starts to ask, begs the question that if you can get more Canadian energy around the world, i.e. exported, mm -hmm. then you're not only having high environmental standards, but you've got lower emissions and you're replacing production from a, a Nigeria or Venezuela. Mm -hmm. it does, never mind all the ethical boundaries around uh, being a democratic versus a non-democratic yes. and, and suppressing freedom. So, I mean, I, I would just, you know, all I ask is people to get the facts. Just get the facts. And if you, if you want, you know, uh, please come out and see it. But just get the facts and, and then at least then make your judgment. Rene Amiro, secure. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Rene Amiro, that was the uh, penultimate edition of Unjust Transition. I hope you've been learning as much in these as I have. Uh, it's funny. So one of the things that journalists do oftentimes is they kind of pretend to be experts in certain things. You see this with like health journalists that kind of think they're doctors and climate change reporters that think they're scientists and all of that. And I, I am like the anti-expert. I, I love being a journalist because I love just being able to ask really dumb questions to learn things about things. And and if, if you, here's the little trick. If you ever hear me ask someone I'm interviewing, I shouldn't admit to this. I shouldn't admit to it, but I'm going to because I believe in honesty. If you ever hear me ask a question of like, for someone, what would you tell someone who doesn't know anything? It's me saying I don't know anything, but I don't want to admit that I don't know anything. Usually, maybe once in a while, I'm I'm genuine about it. But usually, if I say, "Yeah," what would you tell someone who didn't? It's because I'm an idiot. All right, that does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week. And also, if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, we have a brand new show every Friday on True North called off the record. I can't tell you too much about it because, well, it's off the record, but you can catch that Fridays and I will be, I'm not going to be on every week, but I'm going to be on, I think most weeks, including this week. So uh, we premiered it last Friday. We'll have episode two this Friday and who knows what will come after that. So without further ado, we'll wrap things up there. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.